of true delight whom my unseen adore unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more oh that I might love thee more you're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian the following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my pleading And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth, Hagarman. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between, between Ramah and Bethel, in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh, Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go and gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking ten thousand from the people of Naphtali, and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, river Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you do not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead you to glory, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And ten thousand men went up at his heels. And Deborah went with him. Now Heber the Kenite had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had placed his tent as far, as, as far away as the oak in Zanonim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinim, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harosheth, Hagamim, to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor, Ten thousand men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagadim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword, and not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, 
For there was peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Heber, the Kenite. And Jael came to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me, do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please, give me a little drink of water, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk, and gave him a drink, and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Heber, took a tent peg, and took a hammer in her hands. Then she went softly to him, and drove the peg into his temple, until he went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness, and so he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him, and said, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went in to her tent, and there lay Sisera, dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Another wild account, and we'll see, has a lot of parallels with Ehud in chapter 3, uh, beginning with the very word that is used where Ehud thrust the sword into the stomach of Eglon, same word that the peg was thrust through the temple. So we're to see these as one after another and bound together in the way God delivers his people. First, we hear about the sinning again. It does have that word. So, the, the effect is, alright, so it happens again. The, it means they relapsed into this same pattern of behavior. And they fell under the power of Jabin. A couple of things I want to point out here. First, it's interesting that if you adopt the world, that is, if you adopt the ways of those living in the earth that are opposed to God, and the Bible calls that the world, as in 1 John 5, it says, all the world lies under the hand of the evil one. So that whole world, most of the world, does not worship God. Most of the world does not follow Jesus Christ. So it's called the world. So if you adopt the world, you will lose the earth. Interesting. That they adopted the ways of the Canaanites. They adopted their idols, followed their idols, and what did they lose? They lost the land of Canaan, which is their promise. Very interesting. 
You adopt the ways of the world, and what will you lose? You'll lose the earth and its inheritance. It's not a good swap. Okay? And, and it's interesting because we want to fit with the world. We want to conform the world. We don't want to have the opposition of the world and the rejection of the world. But in so doing, we actually lose the earth. Israel compromises with Canaan and follows the Canaanites. She loses her possession. And so it is in Scripture the meek that inherit the earth. Those submissive to God's will. Who live out humility and love under Christ. Those who trust in Christ alone for their salvation and seek to live for His glory. This biblical language then is follow the world and you'll lose the earth. Follow the world and you will be not only oppressed for 20 years, but you will be oppressed being cast into the outer darkness where there is only misery and no escape forever. No rescue, no deliverance, no mercy. This is a tiny picture of ultimate realities that are very serious. God lays those out so that we can realize the destructive course that ends up here is the very destruction that happens when we give ourselves to sin. So, first point then, adopt the world and you lose the earth. They adopted the Canaanites and they lost possession of Canaan itself, which is the picture of the new heavens and the new earth that we will receive. Secondly, though, embrace sin and you will lose your life. And I mean by this, embrace sin as a way of life, and you will lose your life. Several commentators point out this idea of the monotony of this sin. The people, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Davis himself says, the, the book that we have out there, there's a certain monotony about sin. Sin ends up a boring routine, not a fresh excitement. The fast lane becomes an old rut. There's the slavery of sin and the staleness of sin. It's interesting, as I thought about this, because sin is always sold by Satan as, you know, new and improved. Uh, richer tasting, fresher, crispier, tangier. Always coming back to us with the offer. But it's really on the wrong shelf. It could, should be on the shelf with the rotten black bananas and the wilting brown lettuce. That's where sin belongs. But Satan wraps it up in brand new cellophane so you can't see what you're getting. But it's the same rotten bananas and the same wilted lettuce as the last time you said. Just do it again. Same thing. Same rebellion. Same disobedience. The same guilt. The same hollow feeling, the same distance from God, the same loss, the same hurt, the same damage, the same shame. Sons of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. There's nothing new and exciting, although it's sold that way. But the good news for us, post-Christ, in Christ, is that Christ submitted to sin's guilt and its dominion, its ownership of mankind. He submitted to that on the cross. 
He allowed, you could say, the concrete of sin and, and death to send him to the bottom of the ocean under God's judgment on the cross. And then, in his resurrection, he shattered death and sin and left it all there on the bottom to rise to new life. And here's the great thing, is that accomplishment, that defeat of sin and death, belongs to you now. Because Paul can say in Romans 6, sin will not have dominion over you. By faith you are joined to Christ in all that he has accomplished. You are no longer stuck in the concrete of sin. You're not. Because what Christ did, he did in union with you. He joined you to that by faith. So that you too broke out of the dominion of sin and death. You too are set free to a new life in Him. You are being rescued day by day from sin's dominance. And as Paul says in Philippians 2, none other than God, that's how he puts it, it is God who is at work in you to will and to do for His good pleasure. That's the field of the text. I love that. It's none other than the Almighty God who is at work in you. That you would want to do His will. Or as he says there in Ephesians 2. You are His workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus to do good everywhere you turn. That's the field of the text. That's what He's creating you to be and to do. You are and will continue to be the result of God's own careful and powerful craftsmanship in walking in a new life. He gets things done in your life. Like the complete, beautiful, breathtaking renovation of a house, He is renovating your whole self. And He is at work 24-7. He never rests. He never takes a break. He never takes His eyes off this work that He is accomplishing in your life. You need to believe that, brothers and sisters. You need to live it out and act on it. That's why Paul can say in that very context of Philippians 2, Hey, because God is at work in you, here's the New Living translation, which is an excellent translation at this point. Work hard to show the results of your salvation. See? You have a salvation. You have, are a new creation. You are. You have a new self in Christ. Work hard to live that out. Because God, it is God who is at work in you. Well, in this passage we see the, how they lose their possession. They lose the earth in, in a picture of it. And they lose their very lives under the dominion of this evil uh, king. And that's a picture of the dominion uh, in sin. By God's grace, we have been set free from this dominion in Christ Jesus. The great center of this text, though, is that God's, I would call it, His kingly grace is our sure hope. God's kingly grace, or we might say His ruling grace, or His sovereign grace, His reigning grace, is a sure hope for us. 
But so much about this passage focuses on, of course, the Lord's accomplishment here. As even the, the, the judgment or the, the bondage that they fall in, it's created by the Lord. Verse 2, the Lord sells them into the hand of Jacob. And he cries out to the Lord for help. And the Lord, through the, the prophetess Deborah, announces his salvation. And notice in verse 6, she says, Has not the Lord commanded you? And then in the first person, she says uh, what God says. Go, gather your men. And it's interesting. You gather your men or you deploy your men, and I will deploy Sisel. Okay? I will deploy him. You deploy your men. I will deploy Cicero. Even though later Cicero, of course, is just acting on his own. He thinks he's doing his own thing. We know the backside of this. We know the real story, what God is doing. He is ruling and sovereignly orchestrating everything for Cicero's destruction. And then when he is reluctant, or at least as I will point out, I think, won't go unless he has the presence of God represented by Deborah. Uh, she says, I will surely go with you, which is an indication that God will surely go with you. Uh, and, and then it, it lays out that the Lord will uh, do a really amazing thing to sell Cicero into the hand of a woman. It's kind of like saying in the Super Bowl this year or next year, a woman's going to score the winning touchdown. You know, it's like, what? What? How in the world could that happen? And that's kind of the feeling. How in the world is the great General Sisera going to be killed by a woman? How is that going to happen? And it's stated, I think, so that when it does happen, it's a confirmation. Just like I said, a woman is going to kill Sisera. It's God's ownership, His sovereignty in this whole thing. And like many times, if, we, if I had a handout, you could see this more easily, but... There is this mirror image again in this passage. Uh, so that at the beginning you have the mention of uh, Israel three times in being oppressed. At the very end of the passage you have the mention of Jabin three times of being defeated. Okay, Move in a little bit. You've got Deborah and Jael, the two women. Okay, Move in another step. And you've got Sisera and Barak calling out their troops. And on the other side, Sisera and Barak going down. Uh, Barak going down from the mountain, Sisera going down from his chariot. They're both kind of key words. What's in the middle? What's he underscoring? What's the centerpiece, the hinge of the whole passage so that you come in and you go out and there's a mirror image? It's... The words of Deborah in 14. Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? There's the centerpiece. There's what everything revolves around. The Lord has declared salvation, and the Lord will powerfully accomplish that salvation in ways many times that we could not expect, that we could not dream is going to happen. But the Lord is going to accomplish it in His kingly, uh, regal manner. God will fulfill His promises, but no one will tell Him how. No one knows how He will do it. 
the promise to conform you to Christ is an absolute promise that you and I have no idea how he's going to bring that about. The fact that he's going to do it is, is set. The fact that everything will work together for that end, Romans 8, 28, will work together for that good, that is absolutely set. There's no way it can vary. That every circumstance, every event, all the relationships that surround you, every part of your life, all things will work together to this end. But we can't say what those all things are going to be in anybody's individual life. And your life is not going to be another's or another's or another's. It's going to be a unique path that God carves out for you for particular reasons for you. But the fact that He will accomplish it, the fact that He will give the enemy ultimately into our hands, the fact that He will finally completely set us free from sin and conform us to the image of Christ, that cannot be stopped by any force on earth. God is going to bring this about. He will fulfill His promises. Though He may do it in ways that we could never have imagined, in ways that we really didn't want at all. But we always have to look back. Like for, for uh, Barack, he may not have wanted to hear that a woman's going to do this. I, I think that it didn't ultimately bother him because he went to war and fought the war. And he was part of the, the song. Uh, it's Deborah and Barack sing this song that praises uh, everything that God did. And so he himself submitted to God's will. He submitted to how God was going to do this and, and ultimately just gave himself up to do what God called him to do. And it is so important for you and me to realize that God has declared this purpose for us even before time began. And he set it. To set all things so that it would work to this end. That He took up your cause before the world began. That He's got all of His plans for you, in a sense, laid out. And He will bring it about. He will bring it about in His church worldwide. I believe He's going to bring it about in the PCA, our denomination, in our particular church, in your family, individually. Nothing is left out as to what God will do. And I want to suggest to you that this God who takes up arms and defeats Sisera and Jabin in this most spectacular, unusual way, taking the very weakest of things to defeat the strongest of people, that you want this God to be at war for you against your enemies which are not flesh and blood, but rank upon rank of powerful, dark spiritual beings bent on your ultimate destruction. Yes, I remind you as I have to remind myself, that is your life. That is the situation that you're in. You are under attack. You are under attack today. You are under attack tomorrow. I love what one guy was reading a different book and he just talked about the the Christian's position, he says, the Christian's position is threatened. And that means the sense in which a, a, a battalion is exposed to enemy fire. You are exposed to enemy fire. Now that's not hopeless as though nothing can be done about it. Though you're going to fall under the power of this enemy. 
enemy. But it is, it is definite that we are under fire. We pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, deliver us from the evil one. Do you pray that sincerely? Do you pray it expectantly? Do you pray it dependent upon the God who alone can bring it about in His sovereign purpose in your life? God is at war against sin that remains in our life. He's at war today so that we can be at war. We can have growing advance in holiness and obedience because God is at war. He routes the enemy even as He routed the enemy here. He throws the enemy into a panic. So we need to see those things and connect them to our warfare. Oh Lord, thank you that you route my enemy and throw him into panic. Otherwise, I'd be lost. But you do that. And again, I remind you of what we've said before. That's why in James, that's the background of James 4, 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Why should he flee from you and me? We're ridiculous. We're pathetic. We're like a little five-year-old in his underwear in front of tanks. You know? And then suddenly the tanks run away. And you're like, oh, wow, I'm, I guess you're scared of me. No. You're being routed by God. God is at war. And in Him we have authority to be the children of God and to live as the children of God in our Father's image. So this is the great glory of this passage is the warfare that God has taken up in Christ Jesus to deliver us from sin. And He does it powerfully. He does it completely. He does it in a... We say, sometimes say, hey, that's a turnkey operation, isn't it? And I tell you, in the final day, when sin is completely removed from the earth, the curse is gone, and we are gathered together in perfect loving fellowship, worshiping God and, and developing this earth and living out our lives in this new earth. It's a turnkey operation. Every single detail of salvation and goodness and blessing is ours because of this powerful God taking up our cause. This is a picture of what we have here, that God's grace is our sure hope. And I finally want to say, in the, in, in, under the umbrella of God's salvation, of God's uh, His, His sovereign grace being our sure hope, that God accomplishes His purpose powerfully through unexpected and sometimes weak instruments. This is so encouraging to see that God can use anything, anywhere, anytime to accomplish His good purposes for His people. And you never know where His goodness is going to break out. You never know from what quarter God will bring a relationship that transforms you or encourages you. A conversation, a teaching, a meeting, an, an event in your life. You never know what God is going to be doing in your life. But He's got, in one sense, infinite resources. The whole earth is His. The whole earth is governed for His purpose to accomplish this good in your life. And so I want to center on two things that are kind of the primary drama in this passage, and, and that is Barak's comment 
his, his reluctance to go to battle, how God uses, or, or, what, how I think we should view this, and then of course this event that occurs with Jael at the end of the passage. And these two are tied together, obviously, because they're mentioned virtually in the same breath by Deborah. Now, to show you how bad it can be in terms of the interpretation of this passage, what some people say, some commentators, is that Barak is shirking his responsibility. This statement, I will not go down unless you come with me, is either cowardly, it's unbelieving, it's I reject God's will, but whining, I want you, lady, to come with me, and then I'll be okay. You know, kind of that idea. I'll be all right if you just come with me, please. You know, that's the feel of some of the commentators. And actually, it's pretty shocking. When I, I noticed this, and then a commentator pointed it out as well. Uh, as I look, I look at several different translations trying to get the feel of what people think. And the NIV has here this. This shows you that interpretation. Because of the way you're going about this, the honor will not be yours. What is he saying there? I'm just puzzled because it says, uh, all she says is, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you're going will not leave. Well, the translation comes out, because of the way you're going about this. Obviously, they're so confident that that's what's happening. They just write it into the translation. And that's why we have to be careful. And that's why it's good to check several translations when you're reading at times, when you're studying the passage. But um, I believe that we have background for this with other passages where God calls someone to do something and then they respond with reluctance. Moses is an example of that. Others are examples too. But in that passage in uh, Exodus, Moses is, Exodus 33, Moses actually says this, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up for He says, look, if your presence won't go, I ain't going. You know, we can't do anything. And God says in this context, I will surely go with you, just like Deborah said. And so what we have here, Deborah represents the very presence of God. She is the prophetic word of God. She is the emblem and, and the very presence of God's word being spoken. And it's certainly an appropriate thing for Barak. In fact, it seems to me to be a thing of faith. I don't want to go without the word of God. I don't want to go without God's presence, which is symbolized by you. I want to be submissive to God. I want to continue to hear His Word. I want to glorify this Lord. And the, the background of Exodus seems to be, uh, give us reason to say this is the same thing as being said earlier. So her words are identified with God's Word, and she knows God's mind and, and proclaims that mind. And so he wants to have, he confesses his own inadequacy and he confesses his great confidence in God's grace and in God's word. So this seems to show humility on his part and submissive obedience uh, to God's word. It also shows wisdom because later he's able to gather troops because she represents the very word of God, the very presence of God. And it's probably why the troops uh, follow him so readily. 
Uh, also, this statement about uh, JL is, number one, to show I will take the weakest thing and defeat the strongest. I will surprise you in the way my grace is so powerful. And it shows the weakness of the enemy because when God arises to save, the enemy falls down. The enemy becomes a weakling. The, the, the enemy becomes basically a helpless child in the light of God's power to bring it about. And so we find out that weak people, we weak people as we're described in many places in the New Testament, can rout mighty spiritual forces because that's what God likes to do. He likes to use the weakest things to defeat the strongest things. How encouraging. How encouraging that we can depend upon Him for these things. It is also a way to confirm that this truly is from God. Uh, I used to read when I was a child the comic, uh, The Phantom. And some of you are old enough to remember The Phantom. Uh, it was uh, written by Lee Falk, or it was established by Lee Falk way back in 1936. It's still in many papers today. I don't think it's in our paper. But one of the interesting, interesting things about the fan was whenever he had done something, got rid of the bad guys and they're lying around in a heap and somebody comes in on the situation, if they have any doubt about what happened, it's dispelled when they see the sign of the skull. Which he lives in this cave, the skull cave, and the sign of the skull is always there when he has done his work. Okay? This is a way for God to say, hey, a woman is going to defeat mine necessarily. That's God's way of saying, here's my skull. Here's my confidence. Here's the confirmation. None other than God can do this. And isn't it encouraging that God wants to do that in the life of our church, in our ministry in this city, that He would want to do something in our lives that could only be explained by the power of God because we are such weak and frail individuals, so by nature cowardly, so by nature bit in upon ourselves, but by God's grace we become this force that out toward a dark and helpless and lost world to spend ourselves for them. And you can't imagine how that could have happened, but God does it. Because he's the powerful God that takes weak things and accomplishes great things. How encouraging that this is the God that we serve. The God who will give glory to whom he wishes. Also here, uh, it is interesting that Barak knows that he's not going to get the glory. And yet, he moves forward. You might think Barak said, Whoa, 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 whoa! What are you saying here? I'm not going to get... Well, I'm out of here. I'm not doing it. Well, I'm not going to be shamed and ruined in front of everybody that I do all this stuff and I, you know, try... And then the feet are cut out from under me? No. There's not even a blink. Fine. It's as though he says, I don't care what you do. I don't care who gets the glory. I'm moving forward to accomplish what God will enable me to accomplish. And then as it zeroes in, and at 
the end on Jael. Uh, it's interesting how verse 11 gives you this little hint. Now, Hebrew, the Kenites, separated from the Kenites, and you're like, what? Why do you even tell me that? What, what do they have to do with anything? But this is one of those little signs of God setting up this tent, moving this guy. Even his alliance with Jabin was part of why he moved away from his original people, the Kenites, and happened to be sitting right where he was. That's what I'm talking about. All of God working to set something up exactly as he chooses. God is this divine warrior. He is in charge. Uh, and here he is putting into place this Kenite and his wife, who apparently did not go along with her husband's break with Israel and his allegiance to Jacob. Very much like Rahab, who would not go along with Jericho. She breaks from Jericho. She helps the spies. Well, Jael's doing the same thing, but she is attacking, of course, this man who is her enemy and the enemy of God. Uh, we, we can talk some about the similarity with this and Ehud. Uh, the, the motives are, are tied in so closely, but we don't really have time. Um, just the fact that it's important to see that as she goes out, she completely takes charge of the situation, dictates what he does. He only says a word after she has him covered. He asks for water. She even shows him greater generosity, nourishing him with milk. And there's this picture of maternity and protection and rest. There's this, uh, it turns him, as one commentator says, it tur he's turned into a little child tucked into bed for the night and hiding from any monsters who might threaten him. His masculinity has been reduced to that of an infant. Or another, the mighty man has become a vulnerable child. The viral man lies impotent. Some think she used the milk as a way to help put him to sleep. And so Bowling puts it this way, she duped him and doped him. <laughs> That's the way he put it. But she certainly took charge, opening the skin, giving him a drink, covering him. And Cicero ceases really to be a man. And so it's ironic that he says, hey, if someone comes and asks, tell them there's no man inside. And it's almost, you almost can hear J.L. say, <laughs> That's the truth. Absolutely. You got that right. And soon to be no live man. Butler says, when a man does come to jail's door, the answer will be true. No one is there. Only a corpse. It's interesting in the uh, movie, Aaron Brockovich, that uh, if you're not familiar with the movie, Pacific uh, Energy and Gas was this, uh, they have uh, PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric, I'm sorry. Uh, they have gas lines, and every 350 miles you have to have a compressor station to recompress the gas. So they had one in Hinkley, California, where this uh, movie takes place. And in order to run the compressor, you have to have water to cool the compressors, and the water has to have something to keep it from rusting the machinery. Well, they were using hexavalent chromium, which was poisonous, and they weren't protecting the groundwater, so 
hundreds of people got sick because of it. And this whole movie was about uh, Aaron Brockovich taking on, she and her uh, lawyer boss taking on this PG&E. But one of the critical things that they had to prove was that PG&E parent company knew what was happening in Hinkley and didn't do anything about it. Critical piece of evidence. If they had that, they had the case. So, Aaron Brockovich, in a, swirl, a whirlwind of activity the last couple of days before it happened, and got all these signatures, and he lands her in a bar late at night, getting a signature from uh, the guy at the bar, actually. And then this guy uh, comes over to, to find her. Um, his name is, uh, let's see, Charles Embry. Yeah, Charles Embry. And uh, he tells a story. He says, uh, I was working in the compressor, and out of nowhere, the supervisor calls me up to the office and says, we're going to give you a shredder machine and send you on down to the warehouse to get rid of the documents we stored there. He said, why? Nope. And I didn't ask. Did you get a look at the stuff you destroyed? There's a lot of dull stuff, vacation schedules and the like. But then there are a few memos about the holding ponds and the water and the readings from the test wells, stuff like that. You were told to destroy those? And I love this line. That's right. Of course, as it turns out, I wasn't a very good employee. <laughs> he had the documents, right? He hadn't shredded them. And I love what one uh, commentator uh, writes about JL here, that JL was uh, not, uh, JL was not an obedient <laughs> person. JL did not follow instructions. JL does not obey orders well. He is pegged down for good, is how one commentator put it. Davis says, JL nails Cicero. The point here is that the author is amazed and wants to convey the amazement that the agent of divine deliverance was not a prophet, not a man, not even an Israelite. She was the wife of a guy that was allied against the Israelites. What? What? How in the world did that happen? If you'd said that's going to happen, you'd say, no, there's no way that's going to happen. But God brings about His purposes in the most marvelous way. What we need to do is to be out there giving ourselves away to God's purpose, submitting to Him, expecting Him from whatever quarter to do great things for His people as He accomplishes His will. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that we weaklings, we helpless in ourselves, can be enabled by the powerful grace of God to do glorious things in your name. Oh Lord, bless us, equip us, call us forth to trust in the great sovereign work of God who uses even the weakest things to accomplish his purpose. Thank you, Lord, that from Whatever quarter you choose, you will bring assistance and help and grace and nourishment for your people if we will but trust you and move out in your name. Bless us, Lord, for Jesus' sake. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, 
and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain, break radiant through the shades of night, and chase my fears away. Won't you chase my fears away?